Those of you who looked on the title and would see that actually what we're going to look at is some instances of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. I think I've called it the new in the old concealed, the old in the new revealed. And it's long been a real delight and a thrill to me ever since I started reading the Bible. And I came to Christian things very late in life. Um, I was, well, comparatively, a lot of folks find the Lord when they're young. I was still young, but I was 21, but never having read the Bible. And so to discover Christ when I started reading in Genesis, for instance, was just so fascinating. So we're going to look at some of those instances uh, there. But before we do that, just a a thought, really, that came to me this morning. Now, I've been away quite a bit this year. And getting back from, from Spain... Um, I'd had visitors stay in my home, friends stay in my home while I was away. And when I rounded the corner and live a little bit down a sort of dip, I only live in Carnforth, just up the road. Um, I was thrilled to see plants that I had planted beginning to bloom and blossom. And although I was sort of very busy getting ready for various meetings and things like this week, Um, All I wanted to do was to be in my garden. I know this sounds pathetic, um, but this last year I've discovered some of the joys of normal living, like having Christmas in my own home, like um, having dustbin men come on Friday and actually see them. I know this sounds crazy, but domestic things and cooking and, and, and enjoying my home have sort of come late. I couldn't wait to get in my garden. And uh, we're a nation of gardeners, people say. What's that uh, triplet that somebody uses, a little rhyming thing, uh, which goes, I think it was a Kipling that said, you're nearer to God in a garden than anywhere else on earth. I'm not terribly sure that's true, but uh, good sentiments. But I picked up on a couple of verses which I just want to share with you briefly. One is in Song of Solomon, a book we don't often go to because we're a bit frightened of the lavishness of the language. But here, um, the the wonderful poetic language talks about a a garden here, about the lover coming into his garden. And he says this in verse 12 of chapter 4. Chapter 4 of the Song of Solomon, chapter 4 and verse 12. And this is the lover coming and saying to his beloved, you are a garden locked up my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates, of choice fruits, etc., etc. Verse 15, you are a garden fountain, a well of flowing water streaming down from Lebanon. Awake, north wind, and come south wind, blow on my garden that its fragrance may spread abroad, let my lover come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. That's very lavish language. But actually, it's, it, it, it's a wonderful picture. If you uh, think, I wonder whether you've ever thought of yourself, actually, as part of God's garden. You say, no, but I felt a bit wilted every now and again. I feel like a weed. But actually... Have you ever thought of yourself as someone who brings great joy and delight to the Lord Jesus? You probably think, no, I don't think I have really. 
Gardens are a delight to the Lord Jesus. After all, he put the first man in one, didn't he, in the Garden of Eden. But just think of a garden for a minute, and you think of, of its variety and color, especially at this time of the year. I, I think gardens are being especially beautiful this time, do you? Is it just, uh, I, I, there's a, um, a tremendous variety of growth, even more this year than ever. My plum tree is just hanging off with, with, with plums. It's going to be amazing come August or so. But the different kinds of plants and, and trees that make up the whole, think of the different variety of needs of the plants. And I'm, I, I, I'm just coming at this slowly but surely. Um, I have friends who are gardeners and who are very patient with me, but they explain to me some need shade, some need sunshine, some come at different seasons, some need different soil types, clay or sandy soil. But there's one thing I have discovered, is that gardens are hard work. Most of us would agree. Doris agrees very vehemently. Have you got a big garden, Doris? Oh, you haven't? No, I haven't either. Mine's just big enough to cope with. But there's always something to do in a garden. There's the digging, there's the fertilizing, there's the sowing, there's the planting, there's the pruning, there's the checking on the growth, the deadheading, and of course, weeding. And I wonder whether you've ever considered that actually we are hard work to God. And he's always at it. He's always busy doing something in his garden. I've discovered too, there's a verse, and I don't want to take it too much out of context, but in John 15, 1, you know this, he's a brilliant gardener. Alan Titchmarsh has nothing on God our Heavenly Father, who's the most brilliant gardener. He knows when to plant, where to plant, when to prune, what sort of soils are best for all you folks here, all of us who represent plants in his garden. And it's hard work keeping on top of weeds. Now, this, this thinking about this whole concept of garden sent me to another passage in Isaiah chapter 58. We need to come back to Song of Solomon, chapter 4, so keep a finger in it. And this is a passage which has long been a favorite of mine in various contexts. In Isaiah 58, we read about some weeds. And the weeds, in this case, are sheer hypocrisy. God is speaking about his people and the things that he's finding there that need rooting out and digging out because weeds, as you well know, choke the plants, they spoil its effect and they need to be pulled out otherwise they simply grow again. And in this particular passage, and we won't go into it too, uh, too deeply, the, the weeds of hypocrisy. Here were people putting on a good show. It's wanting to be seen in verse 3. Why have we asked, they say, and you have not seen it? Oh, we've done all the right things, gone through the motions of fasting and pretending we're being terribly spiritual. But actually, God sees through this, and he says, but immediately after that, there's discord, there's exploitation, there's quarreling, there's strife. And God has a totally different idea of 
fasting. And he goes on to explain here in verse, at the halfway through verse uh, 9, he says, this is the fast. He said, if you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing of the finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose water never fails. Well, that's the good bit, but before we get to that, look at these weeds. The weeds of selfish living. The weeds of wanting my needs met. And God says, root that out. Consider the needs of other people. Those that are hungry. Those that have nowhere to go. And we don't often meet that in this country, but we do meet it on a very spiritual level. Hungry people those who don't know where to go because there's so many problems in their lives, where do they turn? Where can they go to for shelter that somebody can sit and listen to them and come up with some answers? And says, God, in this passage, you're so busy, concerned with your own needs. Take away the pointing of the finger and start satisfying the needs of your, these people. Dig out these weeds. And look what he says in verse 11. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs. And it's an amazing fact, and I'm sure many of you know this, but we need reminding that when we get eyes off me, I, me, my, the POM syndrome, P-O-M, poor old me, and start thinking about the needs of other people, then we suddenly find, oh, that problem of loneliness and boredom is gone because the weeds have come out and we've been concerned about other people. And here's what Isaiah says, you will be like a well-watered garden. Now, there's nothing more thrilling. When I came down the hill, looked at my garden, it was just a mass of color. Still more to come because the roses haven't come out yet. Why? Because somebody had been watering them. And I wonder whether you come this week because you feel droopy. You feel perhaps full of weeds. Perhaps you don't feel as though you're a garden that the Lord Jesus would delight in walking amongst and enjoying. Discovered, of course, plants need three things. They need good soil, they need good light, and they need good water. Well, we've got the good soil here at Cape Ray. We've got the rooting compost. We share the word of God. We preach Christ with you. There's good ground going to be laid for you here this week. We've got light and water. Well, Jesus said both on both accounts, he was the light of the world and he's the water of life. And what I long for is as we go back to the Song of Solomon, as we think about this whole context of the garden, is that we might open ourselves to the light and the life of the Lord Jesus this week because we're going to have time to do it. And we're going to be able to expose ourselves to the sunshine 
of who he is. And uh, look what the writer in the Song of Solomon says about his garden. In verse 12 of chapter 4, and I'm back in Song of Solomon just to finish off with here, he says, you are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. I had to think very hard about that verse. And I said, Lord, is that me? You're longing to get into my garden. And I put a lock on the fence. Keep out. And the lover comes along and he says, that's what you like? Come on, open up that garden because I want to come in and enjoy it. Then he says in verse 15, you are a garden found in a well of flowing water spring, springing down from Lebanon. And maybe you say, well, yeah, I know something about the Lord Jesus and the life of his flowing in me and out to other people, but perhaps God wants to encourage you this week in your outflow to other people. Uh, one of the, the, the verses that has long thrilled me since, since I first came to know him, really, was when Jesus was talking to that woman at the well. He says, he that believes on me, let me quote it, because that's, uh, I get it muddled up with another verse in, uh, in, in John. This is John 4, and he says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to life eternal. And maybe some of you are here today because you absolutely feel run out that the supply has run out, and yet here was Jesus talking to, Pete, to this woman whose supplies had run out, five broken relationships, and in the heat of the day in a desert, he said, listen, I want to teach you what it means to flow and to flow and to give out to other people right until the day you walk on into my presence. Maybe some of us need to hear these things all over again. And the last thing, and this is, uh, again, in verse 16 of uh, Song of Solomon. Awake, north wind, and come, south wind. Blow on my garden, that its fragrance may spread abroad. Now, again, I wonder what you think about the north wind and the south wind. To us, the north wind is cold. Uh, a south wind is a warm one. And if we here today are flowers in his garden, the winds will come. Some of them will be very pleasant and warm and gentle. Some of them will be very fierce and ferocious. But at the end of that, this is the beloved saying, come on, blow on my garden. Here's my garden, beautifully planted, all variety, different flowers in different places, that its fragrance may spread abroad. And it's in the difficulties, isn't it, in the strong north wind, sometimes in the gentle south wind, that that which God, Jesus Christ has planted within us gets spread abroad and the fragrance is spread. Remember that wonderful story of the Mary with the alabaster box of ointment, the sacrifice as the ointment was broken and the fragrance would spread outside. I think of the sacrifice Noah made after the flood, and we're going to think a little bit more about this, that as his sacrifice, we read in Genesis, that that was a, a fragrance that went up to God's nostrils and just thrilled him to bits so that he said, I'll never more send a flood. Or the fragrance that Paul talks about, thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads 
everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ amongst those who are being saved and those who are perishing. <laughs> to the one with the smell of death, to the other the fragrance of life. And who is equal to such a task? That's a rhetorical question. Well, Christ is equal to the task. And I believe this week he's going to tend his garden in order to bring great joy to himself as he walks amongst his garden, as he tends one here and one there, transplants perhaps another, prunes one here, encourages one here, waters another one, so that we might bring immense joy, not only to God, but to those around us and the places where he's going to send us back to. And uh, he says in chapter 5, verse 1, let my lover come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. My prayer is, and I'm sure Mark's and Dougie's and Sue's is, that our great gardener will just have the thrill of doing that this week. Let's have a word of prayer together, shall we? Father, we thank you for the wonderful poetic language of your word. Thank you that wherever we cut it, we can find something we can latch onto and understand. And Lord, I've just been thrilled with this whole picture of the garden here that you present to us. And Lord, I invite you to unlock some gates. I invite you to lock some gates in my own life. I'm often surprised as to how often I keep you out of a situation, that you might come in to tend your garden and do in my life, do in the lives of these folks here, that which you long to do to bring you joy and to make us a fragrance of Christ to a dying world. Lord, we ask this in your name and for your sake. Amen. This morning we're going to look at Christ in the beginning. Now, I'm really glad because I didn't collaborate at all with, uh, with Dave and with Dougie about the singing, How Great Thou Art, a song which uh, I remember singing here with great gusto when I first came here uh, to Cape and Ray and always associated with my own conversion because uh, uh, Billy Graham crusade in Manchester, the Cliff Barrows used to be leading uh, the worship in that, and that's a song I always remember. I think it was A.W. Tozer who said, that which first comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. I'll repeat that. That which first comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Now, you could meditate on that all day. But I would like to say, I wonder what first comes into your mind when you think about Jesus Christ. Because I wonder how big Jesus is in our thinking. Because perhaps we think of God as being huge and enormous, the maker of the universe, uh, and in the beginning. But what about the Lord Jesus? Because after all, he is God. He was in the beginning with God. He is the Alpha and Omega. Nothing exists before him or outside of him. So how big is Jesus in your thinking and in your lifestyle? 
I love Mary's prayer when she prayed in Luke chapter 1 after she knew that Jesus was going to be born in her, God's saviour. And Mary says this, and this is where it comes out so brilliantly in the King James. My soul doth magnify the Lord. If I had a magnifying glass here, that which is blown up big. And Mary's soul was enlarged and, and she saw God in all his concept because he'd chosen her, a teenage girl, to have his son. And she realized just how big this was going to be. And when I first started to read the Bible, and many of you will have heard me say this, I started at the beginning, as you do. And the book of Genesis, to me, was so thrilling because even as an almost Christian, but not quite, the thing that excited me so much about the book of Genesis was that right from the beginning, I saw Jesus in this. And uh, people say, skeptics today, oh, grown, how do you know the book of Genesis is true? There was a, a poll that was run in our uh, Daily Telegraph, one of our national papers, an opinion poll. This was way back in, in January 1999, uh, where so very few clergy leaders, politicians, people who lead our country actually believe Genesis. And it suddenly occurred to me as I was looking at that, well, I believe it true, probably from a very simplistic for a very simplistic reason, is because it's all about Jesus. And Jesus is the truth. I've often thought of the word of God as being rather like this. This is a stick of rock from my unfavorite place, Morecambe, <laughs> place you avoid. Sorry, if there's anybody here from the Morecambe Tourist Board, I'm very sorry. But uh, here it is. I can only get a little diddy one, I'm glad, because at least I can break this. But if you... Oops, she was strong. And if you look at this stick of rock, wherever you break it, you unfortunately see Morecambe written in it. But it's there. And the word of God to me, anywhere you break it, you will see the Lord Jesus. And uh, I see it, we see it right from day one, Christ in the beginning. John 1, we know these words well, was the word. In the beginning was the word. Right from the beginning of time, God had something to say. And he said it through Jesus. Because Jesus was the word. And a word is something that you use, I'm using now, to express thought and to express action. And God chose to say something to this world through his son, the Lord Jesus, who was with him in the beginning. Now, I know we know all this, but when we think about the word, the word was God, he was in the beginning. Could you turn just to Hebrews 1 for a minute and to Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 3. Powerful words, these. And in Hebrews 1, we read this. Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 3. In the past... God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But 
in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. Whoa, pause there. How big does that make Jesus? Through whom? He made the universe, just like that. Read on. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Now that word sustaining means to keep going for a very, 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 very long time. And how does he do it? How does God keep this world and you and me going? He sustains all things by his powerful word. So all that means really is Jesus has only got to say the word and the whole thing would fold up. Oh, we are being sustained at this moment by Jesus Christ who was in the beginning with God keeping the stars in the place, the sun, the moon, the seasons, you and me, our heartbeats going, the blood coursing through our veins, the breath in our bodies. Amazing. That's what it says. He is the word. He upholds it. He is the word. And in Colossians 1, we read, by him all things consist, hang together. And I'm sure many of you will realize I am not a physicist by any means. But in an atom, that tiny particle of matter, which man has managed to split, there's a neutron and there's all sorts of electrons running around it, so I believe. And there are people that scientists, physicists, have never been able to understand what it is that keeps those electrons running around that neutron. And so they call it the Colossian force by whom all things hang together. How big is Jesus Christ? We're upheld by his word. He holds it all together. We're told that man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So he keeps us going on a daily basis. And then Jesus is the omega. He will have the last word. So it makes him rather important, doesn't it? Christ in the beginning. One of the things that I, I find is very fascinating in this world, when you're talking to somebody about spiritual issues, might be somebody in the bank or somebody you meet and you get to talk about deeper things, about God, very often they don't have a problem about talking about God you start talking to them about Jesus Christ, that's when very often the curtains come up because the name of Jesus Christ cuts, doesn't it? He, his name has cutting edge. It has power. One of the most powerful verses we can read is in Acts 14. Don't turn to it, but it says this. Salvation is found in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. No other name. Now, in Britain, and I suspect in other parts of Europe, that is going to get increasingly difficult to say. It's not PC. You can't say this. 
in this multicultural, pluralistic society. How dare you? There is no other name under heaven whereby given to men whereby we must be saved. Pirka was saying when she came through the airport yesterday, there's the prayer room, and all these multi-faith people, they talk about God, not a problem, but talk about Jesus Christ, the Word, in the beginning with God. No other name whereby he must be saved. Them were in problems and trouble. <clears throat> 